All right. We are uh, having finished John's Gospel. I, I mentioned we would have a few sermons, uh, Christmas themed sermons, if you will. And today we'll be looking at the story of the, the wise men, the Magi, in Matthew chapter 2. So if you wish to turn there, uh, we will be uh, considering mainly verses 10 and 11, but to give a, a sense of the context, which is always important, we'll begin at verse 1. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Well, let us... Ask God to bless the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that passages perhaps well known and even read often during this season would be understood according to the truth that is contained therein and for the sake of our souls that we may come to a better place than even when we came into this building this morning. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I'm sure you've been at some point in your life and asked and said, you know, what is the the reason for the season? And uh, I remember back when I was a bit younger how people used to say, we need to keep Christ in Christmas. And uh, I don't hear that much of those sayings anymore because I think largely we've just given up. Uh, a society on on redeeming Christmas, but uh, here at Faith Reformed Presbyterian Church in the Puritan tradition of theology, we are here to redeem Christmas this morning, and I'm hoping to do so by uh, giving you a, a look into Matthew chapter 2 that I think may be a little bit surprising to the general story you hear from this section uh, in a good way in a good way, but 
Uh, Christmas, I suspect, if we were to say what is the meaning of Christmas, would would probably be answered uh, in many different ways, even by people here who would generally agree upon most theological truths. Uh, to me, growing up, Christmas was just a happy time for my family to finally sit at the table all together and have a meal, and I will never forget that. In fact, uh, that's what uh, we had planned for, for this Christmas, and um, that's just why I like it. Uh, family time. Uh, was it a great religious significance as I woke up as a young boy and saw, you know, my mom having purchased, you know, far too many presents for me and I was tearing them open and saying, yes, I got what I want. Uh, and then going and meditating in my room on the incarnation. No, no, I didn't do that. But I have you now to meditate upon this truth. So even if you were to go crazy on Christmas morning with your gifts, I've got you now. And I think we need to be constantly reacquainted with the glory of what happened all of those years ago. Now, uh, this is a very interesting story because these wise men, these magi as they have been called, uh, their presence in Matthew chapter 2 in a certain sense raises more questions than answers. Jesus Uh, I think what Matthew is trying to teach us here, and I'll elaborate on this as we go along, Matthew is trying to teach us something very important about the Messiah, and that is he is the Messiah, the King, not only for the Jews, but also for the nations, for the Gentiles. And Matthew chapter 2 is strategically located in his gospel to reinforce this point. Now, after uh, coming to that initial conclusion, we are at a loss as to think of what these wise men are all about. And my first basic point to you is to establish that these wise men in this story are a reflection of God's own affections towards his son. Let me state this in a different way. Before the baptism of Jesus, where God publicly declared from the heavens, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased, and pours out the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit, afresh upon his son. He has long before that, at the birth of Jesus Christ, these wise men who come and establish God's own affections through their own ministry to Jesus. Now, how can we Be sure of that. Well, the first thing you need to understand is that the Jewish people at this point in history did not welcome Christ like these Gentile wise men. They were nowhere to be found. Nobody seemed to care. The Jewish people, by and large, with a few exceptions, as we read of in the Gospels, simply do not care. And yet, pagan Gentiles, astrologers, if you will, seem to care about the birth of Israel's Messiah. Matthew is actually writing a sort of polemic, in a sense, against the Jewish people. People think, oh, well, he's writing for the Jewish people with all of these fulfillments. But actually, it's a little more complicated than that. Now, such was the degradation of spiritual life in Israel at this time. We see these pagan wise men come and Uh, I thought, well, in preparation for this sermon, I really should listen to that great hymn, We Three Kings of Orient Are. And it's actually, actually, 
Other than the We Three Kings part, it's actually a really good hymn. Some good theology in there. I encourage you to go home and sing it to your spouse later over lunch. Now, we don't know how many there were. Uh, People have assumed for a long time, given the song, that there were three because of the gifts being a threefold gifting. But I think there were far more than three wise men who came to Jerusalem, mainly because it caused a huge stir among Herod and the people of Jerusalem. Three men walking up going, hey, we saw a star and we're interested in the Messiah. It's not going to really cause a commotion. But if there were dozens and dozens of them coming in a great assembly with massive amounts of gifts and all sorts, this would cause a stir. So I think it was obviously far more than just three. But we don't know whether they were royalty or not. They may have been connected to royalty. They may have been royal advisors. They would have been highly intelligent people who were trained in various ways, a combination between astrology and astronomy and and, uh, would have studied the stars and things like that. But uh, we don't really even know where precisely they came from. We are told they came from the east, but that is a very general statement. So there are probably many wise men, highly educated influential from where they came from, carrying gifts, but we don't know from where they came. Now, what's more is that they are actually fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy. And not just in one place, but probably several places. So, for example, God actually meets the king of Israel as he is enthroned, as he is celebrated as the king of Israel, with a setting of crown of fine gold upon his head. Psalm 21, verse 3, God greets the king with a crown of fine gold upon his head. And then you get to Psalm 72, and there's some interesting verses there because we are told in verse 10, may the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands, that is, from the nations, render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all the kings fall down before him. All the nations serve him. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. You see, this was prophesied that when the king would come, these are the gifts that would be given to the king. But shockingly, instead of the Jewish people fulfilling this prophecy, it is Gentiles who are fulfilling it. But also in Isaiah chapter 60, I think there's another section that shows us that this really is a fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. So the true Israel, consisting of Jews and Gentiles, are going to be uh, reconstituted around the Messiah when He would appear. And kings would come to the brightness of God's rising, is what Isaiah chapter 60 verse 3 says. They would come to the brightness of God's rising. And interestingly, that word rising in Greek can mean from the east or rising. That's why we say the sun rises in the east. So they come to the brightness of God's rising from the east. 
In fact, in verse 5 of chapter 60 in Isaiah, God's heart shall thrill and exult. Because why? Because sons and daughters will come from afar to Jesus. And that is what is happening here with these wise men. In fact, in verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 60, we are told they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. What's the first point? The first point to understand about what is going on here is that these Gentiles are actually fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. That this isn't an accident. But shockingly, it is Gentiles who are fulfilling Old Testament prophecy and not Jews. The Jews do not care. They do not notice. And yet these pagan Gentiles do. And then interestingly, as you would find out, that Matthew's gospel sort of has this unfolding of Gentiles coming to believe in the Messiah. So Jesus will say, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. What's the point? Christ is not the Messiah of the Jews only. So by the time you get to the Great Commission in Matthew, it's not really a shock when he says, go into all nations. Why? Because he's already been saying all nations have been coming to him already. And this begins at his birth. This is the clue that Jesus is going to be the Messiah for the whole world. Now, how did they know to come to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem? That's a good question, and we can't be certain of all of the precise details, but we are told that they were students of the stars. They were experts in astrology. And by their expertise, they had deduced that someone significant had been born in Judea, leading them to the capital, Jerusalem. There's all sorts of speculation on the stars and what may have been happening at that time. I've read enough to know that I don't know. All that I know is what the Scriptures teach us is that they had seen a star, and as Calvin said, and I believe this to be the safest conjecture, God had fortified their minds by His Spirit that this star was significant enough for them to make this journey to see Israel's King. Now, They express their desire to find the king of the Jews. A star emerges. And notice in verse 2, they ask, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Some have actually speculated based upon a lot of biblical theological studies that this may have been an angel as the star. And that is what they saw. It was a star, but it was an angel. Uh, There are other speculations. The point is they have seen a star and they've come to worship him. Now they are assuming that he is already a king. Notice he's not going to be made a king. He's not going to prove that one day he should be a king. He is already a king and he is a king in a room, a baby. He is hardly turning water into wine. He's hardly causing uh, Lazarus to be raised from the dead. He's hardly feeding the 5,000. He's hardly walking on water. He is a mere baby, and yet they have come to worship this baby. But then something very unique happens, and I confess I think most people miss this when they discuss Matthew chapter 2. Verse 
the general revelation that they had seen in the form of a star actually turns to special revelation in a very unique way. How is that? Well, they ask about this. And because they cause such a commotion, what does Herod do? Well, Herod gathers together religious leaders, chief priests, scribes, people who knew the Old Testament scriptures and has to ask about what's going on. And they agree and Let me tell you, the Sadducees, who would have been part of the religious leaders and the Pharisees, didn't always agree on theology, but they all agree that the Messiah will come out of Bethlehem. Why? Because Micah chapter 5 verse 2 tells us that. But not only Micah chapter 5 verse 2, we also have something remarkable. That in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2, there is also a quote. So this is a prophecy where there are two Old Testament quotes brought together. And in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2, we read, And the Lord said to you, You shall be the shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So they are given revelation. And this revelation is that he will be prince over Israel. But he is not going to be prince merely over Israel, which is what these religious people who have come to see him are going to find out. In fact, he's going to be prince over the world. And that's why the Gentile inclusion is so important in Matthew. In the faith of the Canaanite woman, you have got a woman for one and a Canaanite woman. And in Matthew chapter 15, she comes before Jesus and kneels She takes the posture of worship, of service, and says, Lord, help me. In other words, the worship begins with the Magi, and then it's a Canaanite woman, and then it becomes the whole world. In fact, the disciples in Matthew chapter 28, before the Great Commission, they come to Jesus and they fall down and they worship him. So they get this revelation based upon Micah chapter 5 and also 2 Samuel chapter 5. And then the star seems to reappear because notice in verse 2, you go to verses 9 and 10, and it comes to rest over the place where the child was in verse 9. And their reaction is significant. Upon seeing the star in verse 10, what do they do? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Why is that? Why are they rejoicing with great joy? Because they had been led there by a star to find the king of Israel. And what has happened? The scriptures, the Israelite scriptures had said that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. They go to Bethlehem and guess what? The star follows them there. It confirms what they had believed to be true. That's why they're rejoicing. Now their approach of the Messiah is not just based upon a star. And God used a star instead of the Jewish people to lead them to Christ. Their confirmation is based also on God's truth. You see that? It's not just merely stargazing. It's the truth. And so the star vindicates their journey because their journey has led them to Bethlehem and Bethlehem is from where the Messiah would come. Now that's, I think, quite remarkable. What ends up happening 
Well, they go looking for Jesus. And you see, this is another theme. Remember the Greeks in John's Gospel? Sir, we would see Jesus. Here they are saying the same thing. Sir, Herod, we would see Jesus. And they go and they behold Him. And what do they do? The wise men see the child with Mary and they do the only fitting thing. They fell down and worshipped Him. You know, if, if Mary, and if you don't mind me going on a 30-second tangent, a Roman Catholic polemic, if you will, haven't had one for a while from this pulpit, and I'm not afraid to when the time calls for it. If she really was free from sin and co-redemptrix, as she is called in that tradition, this would be a perfect place to insert that the wise men fell down and worshipped them. But they don't. They worship a baby in a manger. And they prostrate themselves before a child. And they offer him valuable kingly gifts. And I think that's probably where we get this idea of gifts uh, over Christmas. Would that not be a fair conjecture? Uh, I usually go away to Cape Town for Christmas, but I thought, you know, if I stay back this year, I might get some gifts because I'll be around. And then those fine people at Surrey uh, don't hold out much hope for Vancouver, but those fine people at Surrey will bring me a gift. And uh, I was preparing this sermon this week. I kid you not, I kid you not, uh, I was right at this section of repairing gifts and my doorbell rang. And I open it and someone from our church comes with a massive amount of gifts for Matthew and Thomas and Josh and Katie and Barb and me. Yes. Yes, Joy. I'm not saying she brought them. I'm just saying yes, Joy. <laughs> yes, Henry. <laughs> Yes, AJ. And uh, it really is a, a, a lovely way. And since the gifts were so great that she brought, I'm actually good now. You're all off the hook. Thank you, Joy. Still got to put together that Lego she brought for my sons. But uh, it really is a nice thing to do, is it not? Christmas time, where you, you think about someone, you think, what would they like? And you get them a gift as a sign of honor. But in actual fact, this text here probably doesn't give us the exegetical grounds for filling the Christmas tree with gifts. These are gifts that are given to the Messiah, to the King, as a sign of worship and homage to Him. And it's an important principle for Christians to think about. Because they are rejoicing that they have found Christ. They have found the true King. And they do two things. They fall down and they worship Him. And they offer Him gifts that befit a King. And we do that with people. We give gifts that befit the person that we are giving them to. And so going into the house... They saw the child with Mary's mother and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, 
gold and frankincense and myrrh. And the reader of the Old Testament, whether Psalm 72 or Isaiah chapter 60, can't help but be impressed by the fact that they are fulfilling what had been spoken of God's Messiah. Now, what's the point for us? What's the reason for Christmas? Why do we gather and get excited about this time of the year? And it's very simple. If these wise men, if these magi, if these royal counselors can come and see a baby in a manger and fall down and worship Him, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us who know now far more than they ever did, who know that that baby in the manger, while he was being fed by his mother, was upholding the entire world by the power of his divine nature? That those little hands and those little feet of his, and perhaps chubby little hands and chubby little feet, would one day be pierced with nails for our transgressions. That the cries that came from that womb into the world as He is in the room crying as a baby would, would one day turn into cries on the cross. My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? That the face of that baby would one day be the face of the Lord Jesus Christ who will return and we shall see Him and we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. In other words, if these men could come and fall down and worship the Messiah based upon such little revelation, based upon a baby in a manger, what does that say for you and I when it comes to this time of the year and any time of the year? It means that we should be falling down constantly that we should be falling down with joy in our hearts, that we should be offering Him the very best that we can offer because the baby in the manger, so to speak, as the world understands Him, is no longer a baby in a manger, but He is a king upon a throne who got to that throne by the cross. And so the very best that you have to offer Christ will never ever suffice for what He offered to you. And yet you must give your best. It really needs to put into perspective what we are about as people. Where are our affections? Where is our joy this season? What is the real reason that we would wake up on a Monday morning and just over a week from now and open presence and rejoice with our family and friends and whatever it may be? It's that we would be drawn back time and time again to the fact that if we are not falling down before Him in worship, we are wasting our time this season. Do not forget ever why you are sitting here and why you are walking out and why you are returning here. Because if these pagan Gentiles could follow a star and fall down before a baby, how much more should the people of God fall down before the crucified, raised, and enthroned Son of God? Let us pray. O Lord, we thank You for Your Word and for the promise of the Messiah who came And for the joy that we have in our hearts that that baby in a room is now the Christ upon a throne and we worship Him.
and we fall down before him and we offer our best and our best is our heart. And so we grant our hearts to you in the service of Christ. Amen.